Hello and welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. Thanks for joining me again this week. And uh, before further ado, just a reminder to, uh, if you haven't done so already, head on over to www.energyflux.news where you can sign up for the Energy Flux newsletter. Um, I'm Seb Kennedy. I'm your host, founding editor of Energy Flux, and I've got a really interesting show for you today, uh, a real big picture discussion um, looking at uh, the future of energy and climate and what it all means for future generations. And uh, to discuss these big issues, I am delighted to be joined by Wake Smith, who is a lecturer at Yale University, where he teaches an undergraduate course on climate intervention. And the syllabus of that course forms the basis of his book, Pandora's Toolbox. Now, uh, Wake, welcome to the show. Very kind of you to have me, Seb. All right. Now, I'm really keen to get into climate intervention, uh, what it is, the solutions, the pros and cons, and uh, all the implications for future generations. Um, but before we get on to that, I thought uh, let's, let's just kind of start with where we are today, and then we'll work forwards uh, to discuss what failure to reduce emissions means in practice for those, those future generations. Um, now, uh, Wake, you've described yourself as an emissions pathway pessimist, and I think that seems understandable when there's a war going on. So we've got this hot military war in Ukraine that's led to a global economic war. Uh, there's a propaganda war, which always comes with wartime. Uh, even cyber warfare is, is, is sprouting up. Um, uh, Wake, is there any hope for genuine cooperation on energy and climate change when we are faced with war on so many fronts? I don't hold out much hope, although I'm old enough to have learned to uh, predict the future with humility. Uh, things uh, happen that surprise us, and so I could be wrong, but uh, based uh, uh, on as uh, deeply into my crystal ball as I can see, I am pessimistic about um, our emissions pathway. I was that before this war broke out, but I am uh, more so now uh, because, of course, uh, Russia is a major energy producer. It's approximately the only thing the world wants to buy from Russia. Um, uh, Russia is also, of course, a northerly country that um, uh, wonders, I think, uh, whether it would be a net loser in a warmer world or whether a warmer world might suit it just fine. And so given that uh, initial ambivalence, to the extent that we hereafter um, seek to destroy the Russian economy with crushing sanctions, we should not be at all surprised if they decline to cooperate uh, uh, on, an, on an agenda that means more to the rest of the world than it does to Russia. And this isn't like air pollution, where if uh, Beijing wants to clean up the skies over Beijing, it, it itself can stop polluting the air there, and that will solve the problem. Climate doesn't work that way. Emissions anywhere affect the climate everywhere. This is a, the greenhouse gases are very well mixed in the atmosphere. And so the point is, if some of the world moves to net zero, but some of it does not, the world will continue to have a problem. Right. And, and the economic war that the West has, is now waging against Russia, 
that's you know trying trying to really exclude Russia from from the global economy. And and there's a lot of discussion in energy and climate circles about you know how to hurt Russia uh, most effectively. And and some people are arguing along the lines of well, it's not just excluding its natural gas from the market; it's excluding Russia's future role in in the kind of the the, the, the energy industry of tomorrow. So, so you know, uh, let's let's undermine their attempts to, for example, export zero emissions hydrogen, like blue hydrogen formed from natural gas or green hydrogen formed from electrolysis. Um, so, or or you know, it's it's its ability to export low carbon fuels in the future. Um, so, I, I guess that would. That would really reinforce that view that, that that this is this is all kind of going to move things in in the wrong direction. But then on the other hand, there are people saying, well, yes, but but this this kind of this has been a real wake up call for regions like Europe, where you know uh, very high natural gas and power prices are going to lead to demand destruction for fossil fuels, a real wartime drive for energy efficiency, a renewables push. Um, and the EU Commission, for all its flaws, seems to be embracing lower fossil fuel dependence um, more tightly than it ever has done. Are there, are there any silver linings, do you think? You have noted some. Uh, this episode uh, highlights uh, the energy security problems with the West being heavily reliant upon Russia for energy or, or any other thing for that matter. But so certainly those energy security concerns are now top of the list and will cause uh, the West, but particularly Europe, to seek other energy solutions. Among those other energy solutions will certainly be a renewed push into uh, renewable fuels such as wind and solar. It may uh, cause Europe to rethink its move away from uh, nuclear, or at least some parts of Europe, Germany in particular. But to the extent that we seek in the very short term, like immediately and before next winter, to wean ourselves off of Russian energy products, we can't ramp up new wind and solar power plants on and, and a, a six-month or year time frame, those are projects that are decadal in uh, how uh, quickly they roll out. And so to the extent that uh, for the next year and decade, we seek to reduce demand for uh, Russian energy products, that's inevitably going to increase demand for everything else, including dirty coal, which is... Um, a fuel that Rush, that uh, Europe has been leading the world in trying to move away from, but uh, that uh, that that will undoubtedly be stalled by uh, a desire to wean ourselves off of Russian energy. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen coal to gas switching in the power sector moving decidedly in reverse, and actually that happened before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, of course, because we had this very extreme tightening in commodity markets last year and that's pushed natural gas prices on european gas hubs up to extraordinarily uh, historic levels that we've ne never seen before um so 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 yeah when when gas becomes expensive then then emissions 
seem to seem to increase. I guess the question is, how sustainable is this situation? Because it's, it's, it's one thing to, you know, to, to, to cancel or exclude North Korea or even Iran from the global economy. But Russia is just it's orders of magnitude greater in terms of its, its significance to the global energy economy. Um, so you, you kind of have to think, well, at some point, the war will inevitably end. Um, wars always do. Uh, and then people start to talk, the, the kind of diplomacy kicks into play. Do, do you envisage, uh, you know, this, this, this kind of move in the wrong direction being sustainable? Or might we come back to a place where there is a cooperation over things like energy security, um, military security, and then eventually um, emissions and, and, and climate change and, and, you know, kind of Russia being invited back into the, the global community at some point? One should hope that all of that happens. It's not, uh, I, I'm convinced that Russia did not understand the high economic cost that it would pay for its invasion of Ukraine. And so even Russia will want to rethink, uh, this, not necessarily today or this week, but, uh, as time unfolds. So it's, it's not in Russia's interest to be cut off from the rest of the world economy either. Um, uh, and so both sides, once this hot war ends, will have uh, uh, motivation to try to stitch back together the world economy. But I think, I think it will only stitch itself back together or the parties will only stitch it back together somewhat. I think that um, Western Europe and the U.S. and um, the democratized world more generally is realizing that Putin at minimum is a much more dangerous character than we had previously understood. And so even if the war ended tomorrow on amicable terms from the standpoint of the West, I don't think that people would uh, be willing to make the same reliance upon Russia for energy and all sorts of other economic relations that we previously did. We've, we've learned uh, that at least with Putin at the helm, Russia is more dangerous uh, than we had realized and is a partner upon whom one ought only to rely somewhat. Right. Okay. So let's, let's, let's continue our conversation on the basis that um, yes, emissions reductions aren't going to be immediately helped by any of this. And even if they are, we're on an extraordinarily slow trajectory towards net zero, which is, of course, what the uh, interna international uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change suggests we need to achieve by by 2050. Now, I, I understand that you, you see that uh, uh, the, the 1.5 degree pathway that the IPCC has described as being just there's no point even talking about it anymore. Like we, we've already missed it. Is, is that is that correct? Well, the point of talking about it will be to help people in the mourning process that they need to go through to realize that this is dead, but it is dead. Um, uh, we're just not going to get there. We're not um, doing any of the things in this very year that we would need to do to get there. Um, the Paris Agreement is a noble diplomatic edifice and was the best that the world could stitch together at the time, but it's not working yet. And it's not clear that it will work. It's not certainly not clear when it will work. Um, the COVID disruption aside, emissions are still increasing. They're not yet decreasing. And there are all sorts of 
um, sensible reasons why that is so. It's not merely that people are misbehaving. Um, climate is uh, unfortunately mostly going to be a problem whose worst consequences are visited upon the future and in great measure on the unborn and how eager people alive today will be to make material economic sacrifices for the benefit of the unborn. We're just not seeing that people are that eager to make big sacrifices, little sacrifices, sure, but material sacrifices becoming immeasurably poorer to solve this distant problem. The world isn't yet signing up for that. Um, again, Europe is the part of the world that is moving most um, uh, quickly in that direction, but only in the context of this appearing to be inexpensive to the extent that decarbonization gets expensive because of uh, price increases in the marketplace due to this war or any other thing. Um, uh, I imagine that there will be pushback on this. But but this is in Europe, which is leading the world. The rest of the world is um, ready to sacrifice very little on the altar of climate change. The global south in particular will um, prioritize economic development over emissions reduction. And yet, as I earlier said, getting to net zero on a national basis does little, not nothing, but little. Uh, because the climate problem is a is a fully shared global problem, and so we need not only to get uh, noble Europe uh, to net zero, we need to get India and China and Brazil and um, a- Africa and all sorts of other regions of the world to net zero too. And those regions of the world, by and large, aren't very focused on this goal at this time. No, absolutely. The global south, you talk about sacrifice, but the the global south has much less to sacrifice than the the richer economies of the West that are spearheading this supposed push um, towards net zero. So um, th- th- there is that, that kind of classic trade-off of economic development versus emissions reduction. Um, do you think that there is a way to square that circle for countries like India, for China, for Brazil? I, I uh, hope that there must be, but but that's a hope and not a not a prediction exactly. Um, uh, I, I hope, on the one hand, that those countries become wealthy enough that they can begin to make material sacrifices on the altar of climate. Uh, I hope as well that technological breakthroughs make decarbonization in the future much cheaper than decarbonization is in the present, and that too would help a lot. But again, two major forces that are pulling and will continue to pull in the opposite direction are the increase in global population. We're at 7.6-ish billion today, but the projection is that we'll go to 10 or 11 billion by the end of the century. If there's a quarter to a third more people in the world, all other things being equal, there will be a quarter to a third more demand for energy in the world. And moreover, most of those newly born souls will be in the global south, which is seeking to increase 
its economic development and catch up to the global north in terms of our energy-rich lifestyle. And we should hope uh, on their behalf that they do catch up to the global north in terms of development. But the global south getting wealthier will also increase the demand for energy, all else being equal. And so there are there are powerful forces that are pulling in the opposite direction, um, and the forces pulling in the direction we want, a uh, 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 reduction in the carbon intensity of our energy supply and reduction in the amount of energy that is required to produce a, a dollar or a euro or a pound of income, um, those forces are pulling in the right direction, but they're being outweighed in the tug of war by the forces pulling in the opposite direction. And so it's a tug of war we're still losing. Right. Okay. That being the case, let's talk about where it will lead us to, and uh, and specifically with regards to the the syllabus that you teach and what you've written about in in your book Pandora's Toolbox. Um, it, it seems like um, emissions reductions will happen too slowly, and we're going to be in a place where we've locked in more global heating than we can really get our heads around at the moment. So does that mean that climate intervention will be necessary? And if so, what does that imply? What is climate intervention? Well, let me start with the overused but nonetheless super helpful bathtub analogy. Um, it is helpful to, to, to think of the climate uh, problem as a tank and flow problem where we've got a spigot uh, running into a bathtub. We've got the, the, the tank or the tub and we've got a drain that drains uh, out of the bathtub. The spigot is our ongoing emissions, how much greenhouse gases we continue to put in the atmosphere. And net zero means turning off that spigot on a net basis anyway, getting to a point where we're removing from the climate system as much carbon as we're thereafter putting in. And we absolutely need to get to net zero. There's only one door to an acceptable future climate, and that's the door. So we got to get there, and none of the following um, uh, contradicts that in any way. But if we get to net zero at, say, the end of this century or into the following century, that means that we will have been filling the bathtub for much longer than would be the case if we got to net zero, say, by 2050, as the IPCC would urge that we do. And so if we spend another 50 or 70 or 100 years beyond 2050 further filling the bathtub, whenever we finally turn the spigot off and get to net zero, the level of water in the bathtub is what it is, and that's what informs the climate, not our ongoing emissions. So we've turned the spigot off, the bathtub is now too full, and the real problem is that the natural drain by which Mother Nature removes greenhouse gases from the atmosphere is for all intents and purposes utterly clogged. It operates on a time scale of centuries to millennia. So whenever we stop filling the bathtub and the water crests at its peak level or the, the uh, concentration of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere, um, that's the level that it will sit at for centuries. And climate interventions describes the things we might do to solve that problem, not primarily a path to get to net zero. We've got to do that uh, the old-fashioned way via decarbonization and energy efficiency. But once we get to net zero, 
if by that time it's too hot for uh, uh, the generations living at that time to uh, consider it an acceptable climate, then we've got a whole other bunch of problems that we've got to solve. Right. So, so net zero is absolutely no panacea. It's really the beginning of the end of the beginning, if you like, in this big struggle against this enormous problem. It is that if we get to net zero late and back to my climate uh, or my pathway pessimism, I'm afraid that we will get to net zero late. And if we do get to net zero late, then it's merely the end of the beginning, not the beginning, n- not the end. OK, so so walk us through it then. What what happens? Because I'm, I'm sort of with you on the, the, the pessimism front. Um, I think 2050 is unlikely. So, so let's assume we get to net zero late. The bathtub is brimming over. The the you know, the atmosphere has these uh, yeah, huge concentrations of climate warming gases, which will stay there for millennia. What happens next? What are what are humanity's options on the kind of technological front, the adaptability front, the survivability front? Well, firstly, we will need huge amounts of adaptation in addition to uh, mitigation or emissions reduction. So that's everything from buying another air conditioner for your house to building a, a larger seawall uh, uh, across the mouth of the Thames and all manner of other um, uh, adaptation measures. So we will, we will live in a warmer climate and we will need to, um, uh, modify our infrastructure and newly build our infrastructure in order to, uh, accommodate that. Um, there will be all manner of suffering that derives from all of the horsemen of the climb apocalypse that the IPCC, uh, uh, periodically reminds us about. So floods and weird weather and more intense storms and forest fires and sea level rise and so on. All of that bad stuff will continue to happen. And because the bathtub um, uh, will finally be, you know, at whatever level it's at when we turn uh, the spigot off, there will be more of that bad stuff in the century or two after net zero than in the century two or two beforehand. And so if you're standing there in the net zero year, um, celebrating the fact that we finally uh, stopped emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, but looking forward to a a future for your entire life of uh, enhanced climate damages, uh, the question is, what are the people in that position going to do? And of course, they're going to demand more action. Uh, we can no longer decarbonize. We already got to net zero. Now we need broadly to do two things. Um, one of them is to find ways to unclog the drain uh, and begin to drain out of the climate system the greenhouse, some of the greenhouse gases that we've put there at a vastly faster rate than Mother Nature will do on her own. And the primary way we're going to do that is negative emissions technologies. This is uh, vacuuming the whole atmosphere and and all of the uh, water in the ocean, too, uh, in order to vacuum out of it a bunch of the carbon that we have put into it. And if that sounds like an enormous task, you're getting it about right. Um, So that would be an extraordinarily uh, expensive endeavor to essentially take the carbon that we've deployed into the atmosphere and put it back into the Earth's crust 
where, ironically, we got it from when we drilled for oil in the first place. But future generations are uh, likely going to, to decide that ex- despite the enormous expense of that, that it will be necessary such that a century or two after net zero, we're back to a climate that people will thereafter want to live in. Okay. Um, negative emissions technology, that's... That's that. That's that's. Uh, it's very hard to imagine how how these technologies are going to be financed or or deployed because you know it, when you have when you look at things from from the, the finance perspective, there's got to be some sort of return on investment. Um, have you d- does your course cover that? So have you have you have you looked at this in any detail? Like what what would be the the economic model by which negative emissions technologies would be deployed? Well, uh, firstly, this is super expensive. It is approximately the size of the entire fossil fuel industry today. So all the oil, all the gas, all the coal, um, that's how big an industry would be required to remove carbon from the atmosphere uh, at the rate that we're now putting it into the atmosphere. So it's a huge expense. You've put your finger precisely on the issue The problem is not so much a technological one of how would we do that. It's who will pay for that. And the unfair answer is the people who will pay for that will be the people who are alive after net zero who want a cooler climate. So that will be the entire world taxed in some way. Uh, It's no longer carbon taxes since we're no longer uh, emitting carbon. Um, again, this would be monstrously unfair, and those future generations will look back at us and wonder why we continued to make this problem as bad as we did for them. But by then, we will be gone. They will have no financial recourse to us. And so, unfortunately, uh, we're exporting this climate debt to the future, and they're not going to be very happy about it. Wow. <laughs> and, and And, of course... All of this will be happening against the backdrop of, well, the collapse of society across everywhere south of the Tropic of Cancer, right? So we're going to have mass migration and huge societal upheaval. Um, whilst, well, I say we, it won't be we, it will be, like you say, the future generations uh, who are also undertaking this enormous technological uh, financial undertaking to 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 hoover vacu- uh, to, to hoover the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. It's it's all like something out of a, a sci-fi movie, isn't it? It's it, 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 I, I can't really think of any other way to describe it. It is that, and yet for the people um, alive in that day, this will be you know part of the um uh, industrial landscape of their era and all over the world there will there will be huge air handling machines pulling ambient air out of the atmosphere uh, putting it through a chemical process that removes the carbon from it taking that removed carbon and putting it into pipelines and burying it back into disused oil fields and other appropriate um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, rock formations in the Earth's crust. Um, if you want to try to, um, it's not exactly a bright side, but if the world continues to develop economically at the pace that it has over the last 
century or two, then maybe a hundred years from now, this won't be as big an economic burden as it now appears, but it will still be a huge economic burden. Right. Okay. And, and those, those vacuum cleaners you just described, of course, they're incredibly energy intensive. And we do have some carbon removal prototype technologies in operation now, and they consume vast amounts of, of energy. And, and of course, our having not yet reached net zero, then the, the sources of energy that they're run on are not entirely carbon free. And, you know, there are, I mean, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but I have read a bit. So I understand that they generate as much carbon pollution almost as that which they are removing from from the atmosphere. Now, I suppose when we get to that net zero point that you've described, then in theory, our energy sources will all be, you know, they won't have, they'll have a net zero impact on the amount of carbon and methane in the atmosphere. Um, but that even that being the case, you still have to build up an enormous amount of energy infrastructure around this industrial scale project of sucking carbon and methane out of the air. Um, and so that has to be built and that has a material uh, cost on, on the earth. It has uh, a labor requirement. It has uh, a supply chain requirement. We're, we're talking about, you know, just kind of rebuilding the entire fabric of, of modern civilization um, uh, uh, this kind of mammoth effort that would require really like we've got like, like the title we, of the show it, it's, it's about a kind of global climate cooperation on like, a like global scale we need, like, we need the, the whole of humanity pushing in the same direction to, to, to make this happen well, all of that's true and so it raises um, nearly unfathomable governance problems of how would we force the entire world to uh, help pay for this? And what do we do about those bad actor countries that decline to pay for their share? This is an unexcludable good. So if a country X refuses to pay, they still get to free ride because all the rest of the countries of the world are going to do this carbon removal anyway. And it... Um, uh, benefits country X as much as it does everyone else. But all of what I've just described is also exactly the problem structure that we have for mitigation. It too is a huge free rider problem and how we find a way to get all of the uh, uh, countries of the world, those we're friendly with and those that we're not, to all hold hands and move towards this enormous change in the economic system and our energy system uh, together. Um, again, we've got that problem now, and, and that problem will continue in this different form after net zero, but it does imply much more empowered global institutions than now exist. Yeah. Yeah, and, and when you... <laughs> so I'm just thinking this through. Um, so, and the stock versus flow problem you described and the, the problem around damages and the, uh, the way that future generations will look back on us um, with this kind of degree of animosity, that will, that will play into future conversations about who should be covering the cost of this. And you can see the discussions that countries like India are bringing to the, the COP climate conferences saying, look, it's all about the stock of emissions, the historic debt owed by industrialized economies. Um, you can see those arguments 
um, just, uh, you know, just going on and on and on into the future and becoming more entrenched, you know, the, 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 the less developed nations saying, look, we are absolutely not going to be taken to task for cleaning up this mess. Um, I, I can't really see any other way of that playing out. And yet we need these global institutions that will somehow, uh, you know, foster a common dialogue around these things. It's, it, it, it's pretty mammoth, the, the undertaking of governance you've just described as well. You're, you're seeing it exactly correctly and you're, you're getting the lines right. Uh, countries such as India will look at countries such as the UK and the US and say, you're the idiots who created this problem. You guys pay to clean it up. Um, unfortunately, a uh, uh, hundred years hence, uh, the U.S. and the U.K. may stare back and say, yes, my grandfather may have created this problem, but you, India, want the problem solved as much as we do. And so uh, uh, we're going to need to find a way to, to move forward on it. But, but it will be an enormously uh, difficult uh, discussion to de- derive consensus from. And yet repairing the climate that we're currently in the process of ruining will uh, depend upon getting those, uh, getting that dialogue, uh, you know, making progress with it and building a governance structure that can ultimately steer the world in this direction. Yeah. Examples from history aren't, they don't provide much reason to be optimistic either, do they? Because you look at um, historic grievances, for example, the, you know, the British Empire, the, 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 the slave trade, and this idea of historic reparations, there haven't really been any. It just becomes, you know, two or three or four generations down the line, you get a politician apologising. But there's, it, it's like, that's not going to really cut it, is it, in the year 21, 22, or whenever we have those conversations are taking place, it's like an apology isn't going to cover the mineral deficit that we need to 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 create all the wind turbines and solar panels required to run these enormous vacuum cleaners <laughs> to put it bluntly all 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 uh all correct um and um again we're we're previewing that problem that our great great grandchildren may have um the thing we can best do today is both to minimize the um, the amount of problem that we export to the future by decarbonizing more quickly, but also by developing uh, the technologies that the future may need to repair the climate, but also to survive in the century or two after net zero and before we've uh, repaired the climate. Those people... Uh, even for those people in 2122 who do somehow hold hands and agree to jointly pay for climate repair, they themselves will see very little benefit of that climate repair. The world during their whole lives will likely still be too hot. And so those people have yet a different problem, a different post-net zero problem, which is how to f- survive and thrive, hopefully, in a much hotter world during the century or two that it takes to undertake climate repair. And that is what brings us on to uh, reflecting sunlight in one way or another to try to reduce the incoming heat and make the um, world in this interim period after net zero more survivable for the people who live in that environment. 
Okay, reflecting sunlight. Talk me through that. That that really is sci-fi. What, what are we kind of sending up massive shields into space to to literally reflect the sunlight back off the away from hitting the Earth? In in the sci-fi film, that's what we're doing. Uh, in, in in the real world, or at least the world that might happen sooner, we have less um, uh, uh, imaginative but more plausible answers. But the to, to, to first focus on the science of it very briefly, um, the problem with all these greenhouse gases that we've put in the atmosphere is that they prevent the, the heat in the earth from escaping. They, they thicken the blanket that the atmosphere acts as uh, over the earth. And so as the earth tries to radiate heat back out, um, uh, that blanket impedes that radiation it catches much of that heat and re-radiates it back down to the earth, and that keeps the earth too warm. Now, first of all, we should thank Mr. Atmosphere. If, if this didn't happen, um, uh, the world would be a snowball planet. So the fact that the world is habitable is due to this blanket that the atmosphere behaves as. But what we're doing by increasing the greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere is thickening the blanket. And if we can't stop ourselves in the in the current century from further thickening the blanket, and if in the succeeding century or two we can't thin the blanket quickly enough to cool the earth back down to the way it had been, then one idea is that we can operate on the other side of the energy equation. After all, the earth is trying to uh, radiate heat out because it's receiving heat in from the sun. That's where uh, uh, virtually all of the Earth's en energy comes from. Um, so the sunlight travels through space. It uh, uh, enters the Earth's uh, uh, atmosphere. Uh, some of that sunlight gets deflected back out of the atmosphere by clouds. Other of that sunlight uh, makes it down to the surface but gets deflected back out by snow or sand or white roofs or any other light-colored thing. But 70% of the sunlight, roughly, that uh, comes into the Earth's atmosphere uh, is absorbed by the Earth. The other 30% is re-radiated back out. And so the idea broadly is, well, gee, what if we increase the 30% of the sunlight that's reflected back out to 31 or 32 percent. Not a huge change, but changing the Earth's reflectivity by that much would entirely offset uh, climate change. Um, it wouldn't solve all the climate damage problems of climate change. The seas would continue to rise. But if we wanted to cool the Earth quickly, uh, if we could find ways to reflect out some of that incoming sunlight, we could balance the Earth's energy budget in that way and either stop or even reverse the heating. Okay. D does this technology exist in any meaningful stage of technological development? I fell over on my chair laughing when you asked that. No, the answer is no. Um, but um, uh, we do have... Um, plausible theories as to how it could be done uh, to get rid of the implausible theories. So people do talk about space-based reflectors. That's not happening in my lifetime or yours. Um, people uh, wonder about painting roofs white. Well, that would help the urban heat island effect, but 
that that's not going to move the meter on a planetary scale. We could um, uh, genetically modify crops and trees to make them lighter in color. Well, this is GMOs gone wild. I'm not sure that's a good idea. But the idea that um, people do imagine is both uh, feasible and scientifically, uh, you know, demonstrable that it would work is putting into the lower stratosphere, um, uh, about 20 kilometers above the surface of the Earth, huge clouds of um, uh, chemicals, uh, reflective aerosols, that would deflect out oh, another 1% or 2% of the incoming sunlight. They're higher than clouds, but they act sort of the way clouds do in deflecting back some of that sunlight. And it's clear that we could do that technologically relative to everything else we'll talk about in this podcast. It's eye-wateringly cheap, way cheaper than uh, uh, decarbonization or adaptation or climate repair via carbon dioxide removal. And we know that it would work because large volcanic eruptions do it naturally periodically. So we have observed since the beginning of recorded history, uh, large volcanic events somewhere in the world that affect the climate more or less everywhere in the world, or at least in the northern or southern hemisphere that the volcano exists in. So we know that the physics of this work. Wow. Okay. Um, So should we maybe reprioritize things around accelerating that and you know i mean obviously not not kind of uh put the brakes on decarbonization but 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 you know be pursuing that with the the appropriate amount of vigor and financial and political commitment because if it is cheaper as you say and it could really move the needle on climate change then that's got to be the end goal well, not quite. So I've given you all of the positives and none of the negatives. So um, uh, firstly, volcanoes do this periodically and then they stop doing it. Um, to the extent that we were to do this, we would need to continuously do it every day, every year for decades or, or a century. Um, and we don't have a good understanding of how that would affect Uh, the climate system. Um, It's entirely possible that this cure might prove to be worse than the disease. That's that's possible. We just don't have enough scientific data to know. Um, uh, And among the reasons that we don't have that scientific data is that uh, those people that are aware of this in the first place are frightened about the implications of this And so there has been literally no research about um, solar geoengineering, as it's referred to, outside of the laboratory. So it's absolutely my view that we need to accelerate or at least commence um, research in the field on solar geoengineering to understand whether it would have any bad side effects, uh, how to engineer it properly, uh, what technology we would use to deliver this stuff to the sky, what the stuff is, what uh, aerosol particles we might utilize. Um, we need all of that to begin. But this isn't a solution, uh, and I wouldn't even call it a solution. This isn't an additional uh, intervention 
that we should expect to uh, implement for 50 years, something like that, maybe 100 years. So this is off in the future, and it shouldn't, therefore, um, distract us from what is clearly job one, which is decarbonization. But if we are pathway pessimists, if we are afraid that we are going to export to the future climate uh, problems and damages that the future will be very resentful of, then it is incumbent upon us, in my view, to also research any tools that are promising uh, by which the future might, on the one hand, repair the climate, and on the other hand, cool the earth during the period while it's repairing the climate. And the most attractive of those tools, with all of its potential downsides, is uh, uh, solar geoengineering. The other huge downside about it, besides the fact that, uh, you know, it's a devil we don't yet know, uh, are the governance problems associated with it. So if we're going to, in a uh, human, uh, if we're going to put a human hand on the thermostat of the earth, whose hand is that? Who controls that? How much do we crank the thermostat? What do we do if it's not working? What do we do if it does have side effects we didn't intend? Um, uh, all of those governance questions will be even harder than the scientific questions to answer. But that's all the more reason to begin to think about this now and try to figure out uh, uh, how we might get in place a governance structure that could uh, govern this in a way that is seen as legitimate by the entire world. Wow. I'm just, I'm just thinking, while you're speaking, the idea that geoengineering, of course, might disadvantage some regions while by offering an advantage to others uh, and, and vice versa, because, of course, the, uh, the northern climes, the kind of Canada's and Russia's, could really benefit economically quite a lot from, from climate change in the interim, uh, from the increased um, uh, yield and harvest and things, while of course the uh, the tropical regions will be absolutely decimated, and so the geoengineering thing kind of has a different effect on different regions. And you can imagine that some might be opposed, while others are, are quite in favour of it. That's that's quite quite something to get your head around. It, it, uh, all of that is right. It is broadly the case that the regions that will suffer most from climate change are those that are likely to benefit most from solar geoengineering. So uh, there's a sort of justice element in it that way. But I don't want to overmake that point. Climate change, in, in addition to making hot places hotter, um, more or less making – well, that's exactly not right. Uh, in addition to making hot places hotter, it will simply change the global circulations of winds – and ocean currents that define where it's relatively warmer than it should be latitudinally, where it's relatively cooler, where it's wetter, where it's drier. And so uh, climate change will have unpredictable impacts on the future. Um, while the tropics may in general get hotter, it's perfectly possible that it changes wind patterns in a way that caused the Sahara to get wetter. Um, I'm not predicting that precisely, but the, the, the wind and ocean currents that govern the world are themselves driven by uh, the climate. And so th th that may change in unpredictable ways in a hotter world. 
cooling the world thereafter artificially with SAI could change those currents in yet other ways. And so it, it would be a difficult business to figure out on a regional and local level who will be the worst losers in respect of climate change or who might be uh, uh, the worst losers in respect of solar geoengineering. All of uh, these things are yet to be fully understood. Wow. Um, Wake, it's, uh, you've, you, you've opened my mind and uh, <laughs> it sounds like there are more questions than answers on, uh, on, on the course you teach. Uh, it is a big, mind-boggling set of questions Unfortunately, while for us they do seem like science fiction, uh, for the people for a hundred years from now, this is their future. So I do um, uh, think that we need to focus on it much more than we do, despite the super urgent problems that visit themselves upon us as are happening in Ukraine today. I, I, uh, um, history won't stand still while we try to solve this climate problem, and yet We've got to try to solve it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, let's leave it there for now. But thanks again for your time. Fascinating conversation. Cheers. Thank you, sir.